Okay. My name is Kevin Domus. My family's back there. You can stand up. We'll introduce them to you if you don't know them yet. Jennifer, and then we have Katie. Hello. Henry and Ryan. Twins. And they'll love to talk to you guys, too. If you want, Jennifer is the uh, daughter of Gerald and Mary Pettit. For those that don't know, she grew up in this church, grew up in the area, came here. We met in Montana, got married in Montana, and now we live in Nebraska. And we just want to say thank you for the support you've given us for these many years that we've done that and worked there. We've really appreciated it. Um, Like you said, we work at Bethel Bible Camp. It's a small camp, about 30 minutes south of North Platte. And it's a fairly inexpensive camp. Um, It's like $55 for a week. If you register, that's like Monday through Saturday, yeah. Um, One guy asked me, and I told him the prices. Is that per day? And I no, it's the week. So we raise our own support. Everyone that works there either comes as a volunteer or we're missionaries that raise support. We rely a lot on donations to come into camp to keep the prices low. This last year, we had a pretty good we had a pretty good summer. Fairly, you know, it was pretty good. Our numbers were up in most areas all around. Jennifer does the kitchen. The cook, she's in charge of all of that. And the last week of camp, she was by herself pretty much in the kitchen cooking for everyone. So it's great in addition to our kids. And I'm the director and of the camps, and we're kind of the managers too, so we take care of the camp. Everything part of the camp is kind of ours all year long, so that's the main thing we do. And let's see, I can't tell you exactly how many kids we have. I don't have it written down, but we had about, if I think right, and this isn't correct, you know, uh, completely accurate, six or seven salvations probably about four or five assurances and many other decisions. And our numbers that are coming, we're getting a lot of new kids and we're getting a lot of unchurched kids that are beginning to come or kids that don't necessarily hear the gospel. So I'm excited about that. But with this also comes, you know, a lot more. Keep in mind, we were low on staff this year, which made it harder. So as you pray, pray that the right staff comes in and pray that we keep it going. During the winter, we prepare for the summer, keep the grounds going, but we also are involved in the community and in our churches in that there's an Awana program. It's a kids' club that our church does. Jen leads the fourth-grade girls, and I'm the TNT director, which is the third through fifth grade is what they run in charge of that. She teaches Sunday school, third-grade Sunday school, and then I work with the youth group on Sunday evenings in addition to some of the stuff. In the community, involved in some of the community services like the fire department, ambulance, things like that. Um, I sub bus drive for the school, just little things to, you know, reach out to the community. So, some of the needs, the camp, we've had a lot of expenses this year because it seems like when something goes, everything goes. All of a sudden, all our lights are just like, Need new and need new and need new and need new and or this and that. And repairs need done, but the good news is, you know, it seems like we're doing a lot of this, and the prices are low. As long as he keeps meeting the needs, we'll keep offering camp at a reasonable low price. So, some of the things I guess for us we didn't really discuss some of our prayer needs, but um, a few things. For us personally, one is, you know, that we continue to 
follow God's leading, I guess, direction of the camp. A few changes here and there, trying to reach out to the people today to meet the needs. It's a different, it's a different culture than when I grew up. It's definitely different. And uh, so pray for that. And our house, we have a leak in the roof. We have a little bit of a mud puddle that comes up when we do too much laundry, septic and stuff, which means there's probably a blocked line somewhere. And then eventually a vehicle to pull our camper. When we take our camper, it's down the road. Those are some big needs that we have that's like, okay, you know, we need this. We can't really afford this. So just be praying, you know, that God will provide the right things for us to fix these needs are that we'll be fine with where we're at. Other than that, we have a bunch of stuff here. Our prayer letters, prayer cards, info on the camp. Um, we'll have pictures or videos. The kids will love to chat you through the videos. Services will be at the potluck too. So again, I want to thank you for your supports and yeah, come chat with us. Thank you, Kevin. And um, that envelope that's in your bulletin, um, you can put that in the offering uh, at the end of the service, as well as your connection cards as well. Um, but those uh, monies will go to uh, the domes, um, directly to the domes this week for kingdom, for the kingdom commitment, um, just so you know. All right. Well, um, I get to introduce our speaker today. Um, and we've been going through the names of God and so many awesome Hebrew names of God that that um, um, we don't uh, really think about on a day-to-day basis. And um, so today and next week, uh, we have a special speaker. And today, uh, Mark Stelter will be given the message. And um, Mark, if you don't know who Mark is, um, he spoke, he's uh, preached here before. He preached last summer while Aaron um, was gone on his sabbatical. Um, but Mark um, was a uh, used to be a police officer uh, as well as a professor in um, Houston, Texas, um, and now uh, him and his wife Natasha live here in Estes Park and run a couple lodges here. And so um, I'm going to hand it over to Mark um, now, and super excited what he had to what to hear what he has for us again tonight because I heard you Thursday. <laughs> Zach, good morning. Today, we are going to talk about uh, the name of God, uh, Yahweh Sidkenu. And Yahweh Sidkenu means uh, the Lord is our righteousness. But first, let's get to our memory verse, which uh, for some reason, they, uh, we, we, just, we just repeat it now. We don't, the words don't go away. I guess that was too hard. <laughs> so, so our memory verse is Romans 5.1, which we're just going to say three times because I don't know why. The machine broke. <laughs> I don't know why the words just stay there, but it's a lot easier to memorize it when the words don't go away. <clears throat> so, before we do it, this, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually very pertinent to our uh, discussion today about righteousness because in many translations, instead of the word justified, it says, therefore, since we have been made righteous, righteous are the same thing. Um, And so that's very important that we've been made righteous 
through faith. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's, let's do our memory verse together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. And again, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. And let's see if we can remember it. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. Very good. You memorized it perfectly. Um, So, as as, uh, Zach said, the last few weeks we've been studying the many names of God. Aaron discussed Abba Father, how that meant the perfect parent, and Warren gave a wonderful sermon on Yahweh Rapha, God the healer, the great physician, uh, that I'm sure you recall. Um, And today we're going to look at Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. Uh, The word Sidkenu is derived from the Hebrew Sedek, which means righteousness. It's been translated about 200 times in the Bible in varying ways, such as right, righteous, righteousness, justified, um, declared innocent. Um, But uh, it means the Lord is our righteousness. So one thing we need to get straight from the very beginning is that when we speak of Sidkenu, we're not talking about our righteousness we're talking about God's righteousness. Uh, Yahweh said canoe means the Lord is our righteousness. It's not Floyd said canoe or Jan said canoe <coughs> or Olivia said canoe. It's Yahweh said canoe. Um, and so we start by understanding that Yahweh said uh, canoe means the Lord is our righteousness. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. And this includes our righteousness. Um, After all, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Not, My kingdom come, My will be done. Uh, And this includes our understanding of righteousness. Of course, we want to see our own understanding of righteousness done and our own understanding of justice um, and our own vengeance, uh, especially when that righteousness and justice is carried out on others, particularly our enemies. Um, But maybe our righteousness and God's righteousness look a little different. Um, I was a police officer, um, but when it comes to human righteousness, I was, uh, to quote Paul, you know, a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was a Houston police officer and then a deputy sheriff in Texas and then an assistant district attorney and a professor a professor of criminal justice. So what a righteous guy. Um <clears throat> I was. I remember my boss at the DA's office, Johnny Holmes. He was a a real gruff, uh, right out of uh, Hollywood, Texas DA. He had a big handlebar mustache um, and uh, looked like Wyatt Earp and uh, acted like Wyatt Earp. And he'd go around, he would tell us, us prosecutors, that we were doing God's work. Uh, And I believed that, and I was proud of that, um, that we were doing God's work. But... As a more mature Christian, I think that it's not us who does God's work, but God who does God's work. Um, So we need to be really careful when we start thinking about our righteousness and our ideas about righteousness uh, and replacing those with what God's ideas of righteousness are. Um, They might might look somewhat different. 
Um, in my personal experience, for example, when I was busy seeking justice and doing God's work in uh, the Harris County DA's office, I was generally overlooking my own injustice and my own unrighteousness. And like most seekers of righteousness, I was self-righteous. Um, but what do I mean by self-righteous? I wasn't, you know, like that church lady on Saturday Night Live uh, <clears throat> that goes around telling everybody how they're sinners and, and they're all going to go to hell. Um, no, I wasn't especially uh, preachy or overbearing. But what I mean by self-righteous is that my definition of what was right um, came from me, not from God. Um, I decided what was right and good and, and, and legal. And I did this using my own sense of righteousness and the Texas Penal Code, um, which is not the Bible, in spite of what some Texans think. <clears throat> um, but we never consulted the Bible as prosecutors. Um, in, in our culture of separation of church and state, um, it would have been at least inappropriate and probably illegal for, for me to do that. And this is the sad place, I think, that we've arrived at, where we not only place God's idea of what is righteousness behind our own, but we actually make it even illegal for us to even consider biblical views of righteousness in our secular lives. Um, and I think this is then was. It was about us attempting to determine for ourselves what righteousness is. Um, we all know the story about the fall. Um, God puts Adam and Eve in this perfect garden and prohibits them only one thing. Do not eat from the tree in the center of the garden. So naturally, Adam and Eve, who have everything their hearts desire, obey God and live happily ever after, right? No, no, that's not what happens. Um, the one thing that God commands them not to do is what they do. Um, that alone should give us a pretty good understanding of who we are uh, and, and how righteous we are. Um, but what was this forbidden fruit? That's the part of the story that sometimes we don't, we don't read very carefully. Um, it was not an apple, and it wasn't sex. Um, some people used to think that. Um, it was the knowledge of good and evil. It says it right there uh, in, in the Scriptures. In other words, it was the, the desire for them to define for themselves what is good and what is evil without reference to God's definition. It was man's desire to be self-righteous. Um, Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so this is what the fall was about. It wasn't just about disobedience. And it wasn't just about seeking knowledge. It was about seeking a certain kind of knowledge. Moral knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil. In other words, it was about us wanting to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. It was about placing ourselves above God, about man's desire to be self-authenticating and selfish and self-righteous. And do we not engage in this to this very day? Um, I know I do. Um, do we not substitute our own ideas about what is right and wrong in place of God's? Um, I often hear myself saying, but what kind of God would send people to hell? and find myself judging God instead of letting ju God judge me. Or I find myself saying, surely God would not punish my Muslim friends just because they don't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Um, will he? Well, I don't know. I'm not God. 
Um, and who goes to heaven and hell are decisions way beyond my pay grade. Um, but the point is that when I ponder these things, I shouldn't be using my own sense of what's right and wrong and whether or not God would do this or do that. I should just be obedient. I should follow what God says is right and wrong, even if I disagree with it, especially if very likely to be greatly misguided. After all, I am a um, fallen, fallible human being like all of us. So what we should do is die to ourselves, to our own ideas of what is right and wrong, and submit to God's definition of righteousness. Um, I think this submission is the heart of Christianity. I don't think we can love God without obeying Him, and our duty is not to determine using our own wisdom and our own idea of what is right and wrong, um, what is righteous, but to submit to the will of God in all matters, in determining, uh, including determining what is right and wrong. It's God's will that should be done, not ours. Um, Jesus, as a man, when contemplating the horrible death that he was facing in the garden, pleaded with God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. But he finishes that sentence by adding, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we determine what's righteous, the next thing we do is to determine whether or not we've been righteous. So not only do we become the legislators of what is righteous, but also the judges of whether we ourselves have been righteous. So first we define without the help of God what is righteous, and then we determine, again without the help of God, whether we've been righteous, whether we've lived up to our own standards of righteousness. Where is God in all of this self-actualization? If we determine what is right and wrong, and then we determine whether we have met this self-imposed standard, what need have we of God? We create the law and we adjudicate the law. We've replaced God with ourselves. And isn't that what Satan wanted all along from that first tempting in the garden to determine for ourselves the knowledge of good and evil? Um, Satan comes to us dressed in many deceptive guises. He usually does not don horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Um, Satan is not stupid. Um, he's very real and, and he is not stupid. And he comes to us in desirable attire. First, he whispers in our ear that it's a sign of maturity and freedom to determine for yourself what is right and wrong. And then once we agree with that, and we create our own idea of righteousness, then he comes along and whispers a little louder, well, who can judge you? No man can judge you. Only you can be the judge of what's right or not. The only thing that matters is the man in the mirror. And we imagine all this to be very decent and mature and moral. I mean, isn't that what we're taught in our schools and by our psychologists and on our television programs? And it all seems quite reasonable. Um, as I said, Satan is not dumb. But in being self-autonomous and self-authenticating and determining for ourselves what is right and wrong, seeking the knowledge of good and evil, and then judging ourselves, we've completely removed God from our lives as our supreme lawgiver and our ultimate judge. We replaced God and remade him in our own image. And I think the way to escape this trick of the evil one is to die to ourselves and to submit to God. Submit to God's definition of righteousness. Can we do this? Um, can we of our own accord act righteously? Well, theologians disagree on whether we can act righteously or not, but I think everyone would agree that we don't always act righteously. 
Um, does this mean that we're doomed to eternal perdition, to everlasting punishment in hell? No. Um, praise God, we have been declared righteous through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. This is what theologians refer to as imputed righteousness, which is what we're going to discuss today. Um, this is what happened at the atonement, what happened at the crucifixion. Um, at the crucifixion, we see God's perfect righteousness in action. It's a righteousness that consists of absolute justice on the one hand, and on the other, unconditional love. Um, the crucifixion is a wonderful, tragic, beautiful, ugly example of what justice and love look like together. Um, there was certainly justice that day. Sin was not merely brushed aside. All the sins of the world were not merely cast aside as no big deal. No, sin is real, and sin hurts. Sin is a big deal, and we cannot wish it away. And God didn't just remove sin. Sin was paid for that day on Calvary. Justice was done. Christ died. Think of that. The Son of God died for our sins. That's, that's a pretty big deal. That is a, that's, a, that's, a very, uh, that's taking sin very seriously. So justice was certainly done. But unconditional, undeserved, unmerited love also reigned on that day. The penalty was paid, as it must be, and justice was done. But God so loved the world that Christ himself paid for our sins. And so on the cross, we see God's perfect righteousness and his perfect combination of, of justice and love. And on the same day is when we were imputed with righteousness. The righteousness of Christ was credited to us. So that's the Christian story, that we ourselves are not righteous, but they're righteous um, through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Now, as Christians, we believe this because, because we're Christians, and we believe the Christian story, and we trust the Bible, and that's enough. Um, it's more than enough. Um, as Christians, we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that's entirely trustworthy and reliable, and we need no further evidence. However, while we rely on the authority of the Bible and need no further evidence, having further evidence is not a sin. In fact, I find the world provides us with all kinds of evidence that confirms the veracity of the Bible. In my personal experience, when I foolishly think the Bible is mistaken or that there is no evidence for some of the claims of the Bible, I invariably find that it was my fault, not the Scripture's. I invariably found that I was not looking in the right place or I was misinterpreting a particular passage from the Bible or I was ignorant of the best and most recent research or historical evidence about the matter or more often than not, I was simply intentionally blind to the truth because I didn't want to believe or because my ideas of righteousness were different than God's. And our imputed righteousness was one of those ideas I was forever questioning everything, you know, in, in the scriptures. I guess that's what you do when, that's what you do when, I was about to say that's what you do when you study law, but <clears throat> that's what we all do. Um, <laughs> I don't know of too many uh, children who don't question things. And freshmen question, they, well, freshmen, and, freshmen don't question anymore. Freshmen already know all the answers. Um, they're like teenagers. Um, <clears throat> but I don't do this so much anymore. Um, and I'll tell you why, because I trust the Bible more than I used to. Um, I believe more than I used to. 
And one of the reasons I believe more and question less is very simple, because every time I doubted the scriptures, I eventually discovered that they were right and I was wrong every single time. And when you're always wrong and something else is always right, that tends to lead a reasonable person to have faith in that something else. It doesn't work in politics, um, <clears throat> but it should. I mean, when you're wrong every time, eventually you should say, maybe I was wrong. <clears throat> It'd be nice if I would see that happen. Um, so, so my belief is based on faith, yes, but based on a very rational reasonable faith. It's a faith based on the Bible that I've found through diligent and critical study to be proven right again and again and again. Criticize us um, for relying on faith as if our faith were made out of thin air. But far from it. Our faith is based on the scriptures proving themselves time and time again over thousands of years of history and examination. Many people don't know this. They, they just take the Bible at its word, and that's fine. Um, but you might find it interesting to know that the truths of the Bible have been examined and scrutinized more carefully, more thoroughly, more critically by both friends and foes of the Bible than any other book in the history of the world. And the evidence, the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the sociological evidence, the linguistic evidence, the psychological evidence, the biological evidence, the cosmological evidence, all of the evidence confirm the stories in the Bible. As Aaron says uh, sometimes, I have faith because I would have to abandon all of my reason and intellect not to have faith. Um, That is the little secret that the secular world ignores. Yes, Christians have faith, even blind faith, And that's enough, more than enough. But Christians also have the vast weight of evidence on their side. It's not Christians who are ignoring the evidence. It's the atheists. It's atheism that relies on a blind allegiance to a dogma without any evidence whatsoever. Um, As theologian Norman Geisler puts it, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, So the story of imputed righteousness is yet another one of those things that we might find at first blush a little bit strange. Um, so we're, we're going to engage today in something uh, that theologians call apologetics, which doesn't mean apologizing for the Bible, but means defending the faith, looking at it and defending it and seeing if it, if it makes sense. Um, so when, when I was looking at this idea of imputed righteousness, I had three cynical reasons why I was skeptical. I thought, first, how can anybody impute righteousness on me? or on on anyone else. How can someone declare me to be righteous if I'm not righteous? Um, Either I'm righteous or I'm not. You can declare me to be a six-foot-tall, red-headed woman, um, but your declaring that doesn't make me a six-foot-tall, red-headed woman. Either I am or I'm not. Um, Secondly, I thought, is there even such a thing as righteousness to begin with? If there is, why can't anybody agree what it is? If righteousness is real and true and absolute, then why do we all disagree on what's right and wrong? I thought that our disagreement about what is moral and immoral was proof that there is no such thing as absolute righteousness. So the entire ideality is relative. Maybe it's created by man. Maybe we decide what's right and wrong. And finally, um, I thought, if we've been declared righteous, why do we not behave righteously? If we're so righteous, why do we sin? Why do we commit so much evil? It seemed evident to me that we're not righteous at all. Well, 
not to spoil the ending, but the more I investigated these objections um, to the biblical theory of imputed righteousness, the more I realized once again that I was wrong and the Bible was right. You would think after a while this would stop being a surprise to me. <clears throat> so, um, in fact, when I looked at it, 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 it I found out that, that imputed righteousness makes perfect sense. In fact, it's the only thing that explains our condition in the world and, and why we behave the way we do. So let's look at each of these three objections I had. No one can declare us righteous. We're either righteous or we're not. Well, this is an example of how self-centered uh, we are, or I am. Um, true, no man's declaration of righteousness makes me righteous, but it's not a man who makes me righteous. It's God. God, or even a God, however anyone conceives of a God, can certainly declare someone righteous. That's one of the many ways in which God is different than man. So I cannot declare Sarah righteous, but God Almighty most certainly can. If the God of the universe declares you righteous, then you're righteous indeed. This is how God works. That's what he does. Just like I cannot say, let there be light, and there will be light, but God can say, let there be light, and light is created. Um, God accomplishes things merely by declaring them because he's God. He's sort of like Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek who says, make it so, and then <clears throat> it's so. So when God declares us righteous, we are righteous. We are righteous because we've been united in Christ. We're one with Christ. So that Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. So I was done with objection number one. So objection number two, if we cannot agree on what righteousness is, does that mean that there's no objective God-given righteousness? This objection to me seems really ridiculous. But before one sees the light, this objection seems very plausible. In fact, this is commonly taught in colleges all across the nation, the idea of moral relativism. Um, the idea that one group or people or culture believes A is right and another believes something was right and now we think it is wrong um, and so there must not be any righteousness. Um, take slavery or women's rights as an example. Our ideas about what are morally right and wrong seem to change within different cultures and over different periods of time. Um, that's true, they do. And that much um, is a reasonable observation. But what is ridiculous to the point of being absurd is the conclusion that because we don't know what is morally right means that there is no such thing as moral righteousness. How self-centered and self-righteous is that? Are we the judges of what is right and wrong? No. The reason we get things wrong is not because morality doesn't exist, but because we're not God. The fact that we disagree on what is right and wrong is not proof that there is no right and wrong, but proof that we're fallen, fallible human beings. For us to say that we're confused about what right and wrong is, and that means that right and wrong therefore doesn't exist, is like us saying that because we don't understand how the universe was created, the universe must not exist. Um, and, of course, if you read Carl Sagan and some of these people, they, they come pretty close to saying that, too. Uh, they say, we don't know how this got here, but it wasn't God, so it must have just popped into existence. We don't know how, just did. Just, we don't know. But it surely wasn't created, even though it's obviously been created. <laughs> so, how self-centered can you get? Well, 
pretty self-centered. Um, that's who we are. So objection number two not only doesn't prove that the Bible is wrong, the objection itself shows that the Bible of uh, the Bible's description of us is dead on right. We're self-centered people who think that we define what is good and evil, and if we can't agree on it, then good and evil must not exist. But it's not important whether we agree on what is morally right. We are not the creators of morality. It's only important for us to be obedient to God's definition of what is morally right. So, so much for objection number two. Righteousness does exist, but we don't always know what it is. We don't always behave righteously. That doesn't refute the Bible. It confirms the Bible. The final objection was, if we've been declared righteous, why do we act so unrighteously? If we're righteous, why is there so much wrong in the world? And this, I think, is the ultimate proof that the Scriptures are right. That the doctrine of imputed righteousness is absolutely true. And we see it perfectly clearly in the world around us because we are not in ourselves righteous. The doctrine doesn't say that we're right. That's why we sin. But we've been declared righteous in spite of this by God. We are deemed as righteous by God because of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. So our behavior is just as the Bible says it is. We have imputed righteousness. We ourselves of our own volition and behavior are not righteous. But we've been credited with righteousness through Christ's atoning death. So while the idea of imputed righteousness may seem strange to us, when we look around the world, we see that strange as it is, it is consistent with what we see in the world, with human behavior. God did not say, now that you've been made righteous, you will always act righteously. He said, I have imputed my righteousness upon you, and now you can behave differently. You can choose to act righteously, but because you are not yet fully sanctified, in this world you will have problems. But fear not, for I have overcome the world. And in our eternal lives, our behavior will be consistent with who we truly are, righteous children of God, but we're not fully sanctified yet. And so once again, my, frank, my faith was strengthened by the evidence. My objections were silly, unfounded human objections based on fallen human self-centered reasoning. The scriptures were right all along. What a surprise. <laughs> um, and I would rely on my faith even in spite of what I think the evidence shows. But that is because my experience has shown me that my faith is confirmed time and time again by the evidence. So as a more practical matter, then, how do we behave righteously? How can we do more to move forward in our sanctification and act more in accordance with the righteousness that God has imputed upon us. Um, I sometimes think when we try to be righteous, we err on the side of justice. Because righteousness, as expressed on the cross, was that perfect example of justice and mercy, justice and unconditional love. And I sometimes think we err on the side of righteousness, and that's probably justice might be left best to God, and we would be better off focusing on the love part of righteousness. Um, because otherwise we end up thinking that righteousness looks something like, uh, something like this. That woman in the Safeway checkout line that took 20 minutes to get her checkbook out, <clears throat> really she probably only took about 30 seconds, but I'd been in line for a long time. Um, Praise God, when God's righteousness is done, she is going to be punished for that, and she's going to have to stand in a checkout line somewhere in one of Dante's circles of hell for all eternity. 
or that guy driving 30 miles an hour or trying to look for marmots. When righteousness comes, God will punish that slow driver. I kind of think that we'd be better off leaving justice to God. And maybe what we can do is love. Um, a real, powerful, superhuman kind of love and forgiveness. Um, the kind of love that allows us to forgive our enemies, even those who have hurt us deeply. Um, as a former police officer and prosecutor, I sadly got to know a lot of parents of murdered children. Um, in fact, in Houston, they had a, a club. They actually had two groups called Parents of Murdered Children. And this was an organization for parents whose children had been murdered. And there were so many of them that they had two chapters in Houston. Um, and I knew one mother who was very eager to see the killer of her son executed. Um, she justifiably wanted this murderer to be put to death. I don't blame her. Um, and that day finally came. And after the killer of her son was executed by the state of Texas, I asked her, uh, her name was Diane, I said, Diane, I mean, how, how do you feel? I asked her if she felt better. And she thought for a moment, and she said, yes, I do. I feel better. It helped. And then she paused and said, but you know, you just can't kill someone enough. So she was glad that the guy had been executed, but it didn't bring back her son. And she still had that, that bitterness and that hole in her heart. It's probably why Jesus tells us it's better to forgive. Um, and I knew another mother whose daughter was murdered, and she actually forgave, sincerely forgave the man who killed her daughter. Um, she wrote to him in prison. Uh, she eventually visited him in prison. And she uh, told him that she truly forgave him. They uh, say they became friends, but they, she, she communicated with him a lot and let him know that she had forgiven him because God had forgiven her. Um, when I asked her how she could find the strength to do this, she replied to me that she couldn't, that it was a supernatural act of God, and that her forgiveness of that murder her convinced her that God was real because she knew that she never, would never, could never forgive uh, that man of her own power. So that convinced her that that came from God. Um, maybe that's what righteousness, whether of a murdered child enjoying the vengeance of the murderer burning in hell, Maybe it's the mother feeling the love of God as she embraces the murderer in heaven. Could I do that? I don't know. Um, but here's the good news. We don't have to live righteous lives to enter the kingdom. It's God's righteousness that grants us eternal life in heaven, not our own. This is the central message of the gospel, which means the good news. And the good news is we've been redeemed. We've been saved by the only righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's not through our own righteousness that our souls depend. We've been given the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are righteous not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did. We are not righteous of our own behavior, our own volition. We are righteous, though. We are righteous indeed. And we are righteous because Christ has made us righteous. Christ has given us his righteousness as his beloved children. This is the amazing, miraculous good news. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. 
we're not better than other people. We're just forgiven. And we have been forgiven of all of our sins and made righteous through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And how do we obtain this righteousness? Well, we simply have to accept it. It's a gift, but it's not a gift that's going to be forced upon us against our will. It's a gift that we must accept. When Jesus was asked, what can we do to perform the works of God? He replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. That's in John 6, 28. So that is how we obtain our righteousness. We accept the loving, unmerited gift of Jesus' righteousness given to us, paid for by Christ because of God's great love for us. That is what righteousness is, to believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to remember that you are the author of what is right and what is wrong. Thank you for your free gift of righteousness. We know that we are unworthy. We thank you for your unconditional love and your amazing grace that you would declare us, even while we were still sinners, to be righteous in your sight, that you would unite yourself with us so that we may become one and share in your righteousness, in your glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.